Amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be back. I feel like I haven't been able to be in this pulpit in quite a while. Uh, last week, again, away for a funeral down in West Texas, actually the, uh, a place called Claude, Texas, outside of Amarillo, so tiny little town. Uh, the week before that, we had a snowstorm, so uh, I really I've been sitting on this sermon for about three weeks now. And Dan did a fantastic job last week. So thankful for Dan Elliott. And finally, good to, good to finally get him here preaching, which is his real passion uh, as well. And Dan continues to bless us uh, with his friends. So thank you, Adam. And uh, really great, great worship this morning. Really, Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks to the Lord for the way he's used you. Um, but I think there's a reason why maybe I've been sitting on this particular passage, because it does emphasize the love of God. And here we are gathered on Valentine's Day Weekend, So we're back in Romans, and we have been looking at the whole sort of argument of Romans that we are sinful and therefore under the just judgment of God, but the righteousness of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ, that God has provided a means of salvation, he's provided a righteousness for us, and the way we receive that is by faith. That was what chapter 4 was all about, that we receive this by faith. Uh, Grace gives faith receives. God gives us salvation. He makes us into a right standing before him. By his grace, we receive it by believing, by trusting in him, as we saw Abraham did, in particular, in chapter 4. Well, in chapter 5, he now he starts to talk about rejoicing over this gospel, the blessings of this gospel. In fact, the overriding theme of chapter 5, we're just going to do 1 through 11 today, uh, is really rejoice. And the word used for rejoice, uh, it's used throughout the New Testament. It means things like boast, glory in, celebrate, or an old-fashioned word, exalt in. We rejoice in this gospel. Uh, Again, if you simply believe the gospel with simply a sort of an intellectual assent to it, you have only gotten halfway there, okay? This is something we celebrate we rejoice in, we take the blessings of the gospel and recognize them, and they should lead us to true joy. Ponder it over your soul, receive them and celebrate them. Look with me at chapter 5 of Romans, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 5, the gospel should cause us to rejoice in God. We read this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been, now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved By him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, 
Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord add his blessing to the preaching and the receiving of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. Verses 1 through 5, we rejoice. We rejoice in God because we have peace with him. We have peace with him. And then verses 6 through 8, we rejoice in God because we are loved by him. And then finally in 9 through 11, we rejoice in God because we are saved. We are saved by him. So look at verses 1 through 5. We rejoice because we have peace with God. The gospel means we have peace with God. Since, he says, you have been justified. That's what we've been talking about really in chapters 1 through 4. We are declared righteous in his sight, counted right or holy in his sight through faith. Because of the grace of God, since that's the case, he says now we have peace with God. There is something relationally that's changed in the way we relate to God, our creator, our judge, and really our father. Sin made us enemies of God. Under his judgment, under his wrath, separated from him, but now there's peace. And, and friends, understand this blessing. One of the Tyndall commentary writes this, uh, David Garland. Justification is a judicial term for the law courts. A judge may acquit accused persons without ever entering a personal relationship with them. The judge only announces this ver- the verdict, in this case not guilty. But listen, the accused hardly expects to be invited over for dinner by the judge after this ruling. <laughs> but probably hopes to never see the judge again. But in the gospel, it's not only that we are declared righteous in God's sight in a judicial sense. We are now made friends with God. That's a biblical term. We have his favor. We are in communion with God. He cares for us. We cast our cares on him because he actually cares for us. We have a covenantal love with our creator. Again, those are all biblical terms to describe the type of relationship we now have with God. It says, through Jesus Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace. It's almost like grace is a place. Um, and it's through Jesus that we have now, by faith, we get into this place called grace, a place where there is the favor of God, the love of God, peace with God. Faith receives what grace gives us. And he ends this section, verse 5, by saying, so now we rejoice. Again, that word glory and boast in, exult in. We rejoice in the hope of glory. The only right response to being at peace with our God is joy. (laughs) Celebrate it. Enjoy it. Glory in it. Then he turns, though, uh, to a sort of uh, subcategory here, uh, and that is suffering. Doesn't spend a lot of time in it. We'll actually talk about this later on in the letter. Um, Why does he begin talking about it here? Uh, Probably because if we talk about the peace of God, you don't usually expect to suffer. And so the next question that might be on people's mind, and particularly the Roman Christians reading this is, well, if we have this peace with God, then why do we still suffer? And he begins to answer that in verses 3 through 5 here. He says, we rejoice not only in the fact that we have peace with God, we rejoice in our sufferings. And again, again, same word, we glory in them. And the idea is, of course, not because we're masochists. You know, we enjoy pain. We found a a way to to have pleasure in, in, in suffering and physical pain or something like that. But because of what it produces. Suffering has a purpose to it now. 
It's not God's judgment. It's not God's wrath. Not that God is angry with you and that's why you're suffering. For those in Christ, God is doing something now through that suffering. And here he begins to tell us what he's doing. He's producing endurance. You know, somebody comes to faith. They're excited about the Lord. One of the most wonderful things to watch happen, right? Any age, somebody comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. They're passionate. They're on fire. They want to tell everybody in the world about Jesus. They want to read the Bible all day long. And all that's amazing. But now the next question is, can they endure? Is, is that a flash in the pan sort of experience? Or is that something that's going to last? And usually the thing that's going to really test that is suffering. What happens when things aren't going your way? What happens when doubts do begin to set in? What happens when your family gets upset with you because you're devoted to the Lord? What happens when there is some opposition, persecution um, at work or whatever it is? What happens then? Do you endure? Suffering produces an enduring Christian. It doesn't end there. He says then endurance produces character. You know, like a veteran, somebody who's seen time on the battlefield or in whatever field they're in. You know, a doctor who's worked the emergency room for 20 years and has seen everything that walks into that door. They now have character. Somebody that endures over time, it produces a certain type of Christian, one who will never walk away from the Lord. There's no way to get there, friends, outside of suffering. But even that's not the end result. Character produces hope. It gets our eyes off of this world and onto that which is to come. As he describes it here, the day that is to come. Uh, Somebody who is maturing the faith through suffering realizes that this world is temporary. That we're sort of weaned off of the love of this world and of all that it sort of gives us. And saying, instead, I look forward to the day to be with the Lord, which is better than anything that this world has to offer us. And he says, hope doesn't put us to shame. It will not disappoint. Our hope, the Christian hope, will be satisfied in fullness when we get there. And as he says here, God has put his love in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. So he enables us to endure. He reminds us that he's with us, that he loves us, even in the midst of suffering. But again, I think he's not going into a whole separate section on suffering. He's simply saying, we have peace with God. Whether you feel that or not, we have peace with God through Christ. And even if we're going through hard times, that suffering is no longer wrath or judgment of God. That is God's sanctifying work in your life. Peace with God, though. Think about that, friends. We all want peace. Uh, I don't think I've ever met a person who doesn't want peace. Right? Uh, we want an inner peace. We want that sense of, of rest within our souls. Uh, even Eastern religions talk about nirvana, right? This idea of that, or uh, the Jews would talk about shalom, the inner peace. And we want outer peace. Uh, all that's going on with Russia and Ukraine and all around the world here. We don't want to see the world at war and people being hurt and harmed. And we want to see world peace, right? It starts here with a peace with God. An objective peace, by the way. Sin stood in the way between us and our creator. We are traitors who have committed treason against our king, and God in his mercy sends his son and restores that relationship. Jesus fixes it. He reconciles us with God. And we receive that gift of grace, and now there is peace. And friends, that peace, the more we reflect on the sense that we now have a peace with our God, our creator, the more we understand 
that inner peace, the more that inner peace begins to come upon us. We sense the peace that we actually really truly have in reality with God, that we have his favor. And I know many Christians struggle with peace. And and to be honest, I don't know if we'll ever have complete, true, full peace uh, in this life because we're not in heaven yet, right? So it's always going to be a battle to try to find peace. Whenever anyone that is like this 24-7 365 days a year, I would wonder if they're telling the truth, right? Uh, We're going to continue to struggle with it, but we can really have it. And the way it comes is by deeply reflecting on the fact that God is not angry with you. He's not against you. Your sins don't stand in the way any longer with him. He has made peace. And let that peace then lead to that inner peace, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And so forth. We have peace with God through Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you're here, or you're watching online, I just want to welcome you. <laughs> you, you can have this peace. Uh, God is offering amnesty right now. Uh, welcome, come, and be restored into a relationship with God. For those here who are believers, remember God is not your enemy. <laughs> Your sin doesn't stand between you and him. Ponder that. Consider it. Apply it to your own soul. Even in the midst of suffering. Even when we go through hard times, that's not God's anger with you. One of the things that uh, during this funeral, uh, we did, uh, this funeral was for Jessica's uh, aunt, if those who didn't know this, strong, faithful believer, dealt with a pulmonary disease for the last two, three years. And one of the things that came out during the funeral a number of times, she never complained. Never once said, why me? Never once said that this is God's anger or God's not treating me fairly. Simply received it as ultimately God's plan and ultimately went to be with him. Now, I don't know what you got. I would complain, all right? So I'd I'd be complaining. God, why me? But she faced it recognizing that there is a good and loving father who has his purpose and plan through it. The more we apply this to our soul, the more we get this inner peace, this sense of rest, friends. This is true, by the way, of so much in the Christian life. Uh, As a pastor, people will come and they'll say, you know, I struggle with guilt. I struggle with shame. And the first thing I would say is, Maybe there's a reason for that. Let's just, before you rush to getting rid of guilt and shame, are you guilty of something? Maybe there's something to be ashamed of. But then deal with that. And for those who are in Christ, friends, when our guilt has been paid for by Jesus and our shame has been taken away, and so the more we reflect on what God has done, the more that guilt and the shame begins to disappear. And I know some people, some Christians, are just, they have more sensitive consciences and they tend to struggle with guilt more. All the more, reflecting on the fact that God has taken away your guilt. As we'll say later on in chapter 8, if God doesn't hold your sin against you, who cares what anyone else thinks? I mean, he's the ultimate authority. He's the only one that matters, right? There's nobody that goes above God. So if God says, sin, gone, dealt with, finished, there is no guilt, there is no shame left. Friends, we have peace with God, and we rejoice in it, and we celebrate it. We also this, though, friends, we are loved by God. Verses 6 through 8. 
We rejoice in the fact that we're loved by God. He says here, well, we were still weak. And by that, he doesn't mean physically weak. He means spiritually weak. Weak and unable to redeem ourselves. Unable to pull ourselves up and restore our own relationship to God. Well, we're still weak. At the right time, under the perfect providence of God, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. And he says here, he died for the ungodly. Because as we saw through chapters 1 through 3, for those who are with us, That's all there is. There isn't anybody else. There's only ungodly. He does speak sort of theoretically here. He says one might scarcely die for a righteous person. And someone might even dare to die for a good person. By the way, I'm not sure what the difference is between those two. Uh, There may be no difference. It may be simply rhetorical. Some have tried to sort of parse out the, the slight differences. Maybe a righteous person is someone who is known for his his or her sort of Torah-abiding faithfulness. And a good person is really more someone who has been good to you. So they've you know, demonstrated mercy and love to you. Would be willing to die for the person who is kind of very Torah-abiding, but a little bit more willing to die, maybe, for the person who's been kind to us. But either way, again, we're parsing out something that's really unimportant. His point is, when Christ died for you and for me, he did it while we were still sinners. God shows his love, his agape, for us in this. Not when we were cleaned up, good people, Torah abiding, merciful and kind to everybody. Well, we were still sinners, unworthy of his love. And that's what what agape love is, right? That's what Christian love is. In fact, the word agape later becomes uh, translated in English as charity. Uh, which gets used for generous giving to those who are in need. But the idea behind the word is it's not loving those who deserve your love. It's not loving your own family. That's a different word. It's loving the unlovable. It's loving people regardless of whether they're lovable or not. This weekend, we remember, we celebrate love, right? Valentine's Day. This, By the way, guys, I mean, I don't know who's in charge of these NFL dates, but... So they chose the Super Bowl the day before Valentine's Day. All these folks that are traveling to L.A., they're not even going to be home with their, you know, their spouses by Monday. Uh, not a good decision there, but, but either way, go Bengals anyway. So, uh, but Valentine's Day is a time that we recognize love. There is no greater love than this, friends. God loves you. Maybe you don't feel that way. Adam kind of mentioned that in the the worship. Maybe you don't feel it. God demonstrates it in his action. Does he love me? He died for you. That's the greatest, that's to give up everything, right? If you die for someone, you're saying, I'm not holding anything back. I'm giving giving it all. God loves us enough that his own son, the Lord Jesus, would pay our penalty on the cross and die our death. And he died for you and me. Not when we deserved it. (laughs) Not when you cleaned up your act and fixed up your life. While you were still in rebellion against him. When we were still a mess. And we're all a mess, by the way. Some more evidently so, more outwardly so, let's say, than others. But we're all a mess, spiritually. 
it's maybe a little bit of an overstatement, but they say the difference between those in prison and us who are not in prison is their sins just happen to be illegal. Ours aren't. Friends, we rejoice in the love of God. God is a God of action. Let, let your feelings be shaped by his work. Willing to die in your place. Willing to die in my place. And also know, friends, that you don't have to have it all together. Okay? Uh, God loved you before you had it all together. He's not going to turn away from you now that you don't have it all together. Right? No one is too far from God. You don't have to fix your life first. Come to him. Now, God loves us enough that he's not going to leave us there. He's going to change our lives as we come to him. He's not going to leave us in our ungodliness and sin. He's going to begin to transform us, of course. But his love has never been dependent upon us cleaning up our lives. And again, I love the analogy of parenting. I think it's the most clear, one of the most clearest ways to look at it. I mean, do you want your kids living with a constant fear that if I mess up, then, then mom's not going to love me anymore and she's going to disown me? No. I love you no matter what, but I want you to clean up your act if you're not involved in things you shouldn't be or whatnot. But my love for you preceded that and is not dependent on those things. Christians, let's marvel. Let's glory. Let's exult. Let's rejoice over the love of God. By the way, that's what worship is. Worship is not just having good theology. It's necessary to have good theology. It's celebrating that reality. It's enjoying it emotionally even, enjoying the fact that God loves us, that he's redeemed us and saved us. 9 through 11, not only do we rejoice that we have peace with God, not only do we rejoice that we are loved by God, but we are saved by him. Saved. Now, that's such a common word. We use that all the time. He hasn't really talked much about save, being saved um, up to this point in Romans. He's focused on being declared righteous, being justified. But here he brings in this idea of salvation. Since we are justified, since we are declared righteous by his blood. By the way, by his blood um, just simply means blood is another way of saying by his death. Uh, sometimes I think Christians have gone uh, a, a road that... I don't think the Bible is really leading us down and they get sort of mystical about the blood of Jesus. Uh, to say by someone's blood just means by their death, by the fact that they were executed, particularly Jesus was crucified. But by his blood we are saved from wrath. The very judgment that he described in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus saves us from it. He rescues us from it. He protects us from the wrath that is to come. He says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, made peace with God by his death, how much more so are we saved by his life, by his resurrection? And he ends this section here, verse 11, we rejoice again, same word used, in God through the Lord Jesus who's brought about this reconciliation. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, That word has become almost synonymous with Christianity in so many circles. Um, Is She's saved, or he's a saved person, almost basically means he's a Christian. So we've actually used that word almost um, synonymously with the very term of Christian. Uh, What are we saved from? And I think sometimes we get a little mixed up on this. Biblically speaking, the answer is actually crystal clear. We are saved from the wrath of God. Uh, Satan is an enemy, no doubt, and we are certainly protected from him. We are saved from some evil in this life. 
Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. But when we talk about being saved, primarily what we are saved from is God's just judgment on sin. In other words, the enemy is not primarily Satan or this world. It's us. It's our own rebellion against God. And God is a just judge brings about an appropriate judgment unless it gets paid for. And the answer that scripture gives us is that Jesus pays for it for us if we receive this gift in faith. But it's only where he's saved from this. We are saved for something. As he says, we're saved by his life. Uh, when you save something from destruction or ruin, you save it for something. You want to keep it. You want to maintain it. Um, we're going through some of our, our dishes because Jess is doing this you know, renovation of our kitchen a little bit here. And uh, so she's, and my wife is vicious about throwing stuff away. I mean, really is, really. So she's just throwing about all these, you know, throwing away all these old dishes. And uh, some of it I'm looking and saying, no, 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 I want to save that one. <laughs> I'm saving it from destruction, literally. Uh, but I want to save it for something. What am I going to do with it afterwards, right? I don't know, put it on a shelf or put it in my office or do something with it. I don't know if it has some history to it. When God saves us, he doesn't just save us from destruction. He saves us for eternal love. To live for him in this life, but more than that, to be with him forever. Friends, rejoice in the glory of salvation. I mentioned the wrath of God or hell, and I know there's a lot of, you know, it's, maybe different views that people have about let's just say let's say we got it wrong okay let's say it's all symbolism right there's no real because people say how can you have fire and light i mean in darkness right you can't have both or uh, and there may be a lot of truth to that i don't know the details of what is exactly literal but here's what i know i don't want to find out either <laughs> I, I mean whatever it is symbolic of is not good right whatever god is has in mind in describing hell in scripture it is not a place I want to ever go. And in his mercy, through Christ, we don't have to go there. <laughs> we can know this, that the judge of all the earth will do right. So somebody says, I don't think it's fair. Trust me, your sense of fairness is only a reflection of being made in the image of God. In other words, our sense of justice only comes from the fact that we're humans made by God who understand justice. Animals don't even consider that, right? The lion doesn't say, is it just for me to eat the zebra or not, right? It doesn't think that way. We're the ones who consider what is fair and what is just. That comes from being made in his image. So God is not going to then turn and do something unjust in our own understanding. In the end, we'll say God did only what was right and fair and good and just. But rejoice in this, friends, the reality that through Jesus we are saved from whatever is to come. Yes, we suffer now, but even that has been turned into a sanctifying work in us. In the end, we'll be with him. We like to exult, rejoice in a lot of things. We exult in the Super Bowl, right? Especially if you're from L.A. or Cincinnati. We rejoice in falling in love. Valentine's Day. Maybe we rejoice in a windfall financially. We have a victory greater than any Super Bowl, friends. 
we have a victory in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have a love that's even better than falling in love. We have the love of God, our Father, his favor towards us. And we have riches better than anything that this world has to offer. The riches of life, eternal. The gospel should cause us to rejoice in God. Now, joy is a funny thing because joy is an emotion, right? And, and some people are just more naturally joyful than others. Um, and you say, well, how can we be commanded again and again, Pastor Rick, to be joyful? I mean, it's an emotion. I can't just command myself to be happy, right? If, if you could do that, then who would ever choose to not be happy? Right? You can't just shift your mood just, just on the you know, drop of a hat here. Well, how do you be happy then? The way you become happy is you have to have reason <laughs> to be happy, right? You have to have the right perspective of blessings, a sense of gratitude, a sense of meaning and value and purpose to life. That's where happiness comes from. Well, the gospel gives us these very reasons. You have peace with God. He is not against you. His favor is for you. You are loved by God. And again, if God loves you, who cares what anyone else does? (laughs) I mean, I love the fact that I have a family that loves me, and a church family that loves me, and so forth. But God Almighty, the Creator, loves me enough to give his own son for me. And you are saved from wrath and saved for life. John Stott, the theologian, said this, to be sure of the love of his or her parents is almost indispensable to the healthy emotional development of a child. To be sure of the love of spouse or friend is marvelously conducive to human fulfillment. To be sure of God's love brings even richer blessings. It is the major secret to joy, peace, freedom, confidence, and self-respect. The gospel should cause us to rejoice in God. Pray with me. Our gracious God, thank you so much that we together as a church can marvel, exalt, enjoy, celebrate the gospel. The fact that our sin, even though our sin had created a chasm between us and you, in Jesus you have brought peace. And let that peace that we have with you bring an inner peace to us. And let that inner peace lead to peace with others as well. Lord, we rejoice that you, our God, has, have saved us saved us from the right judgment of sin and saved us for yourself forever. And Lord, we rejoice that you love us. For anyone here who's maybe struggling with that very issue, feeling as if God's against them, help them to look to Christ and what he has done and then rejoice in the deep, eternal love of God. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.